We're a bit nervous about this one. Yeah. Yarn is. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Nervous laugh. Nervous laugh. Yeah. Because today we have on the podcast Mark Jenkin. Mark Jenkin. Mark Jenkin. The Mark Jenkin. Yeah. Not like an imitator. No. Although, not like wow, another he would have imitator. been a really good imitator if it were an imitator. Yeah, but yeah, no, we're pretty sure this is the legit... In fact, it is Mark Jenkin. Guys, it's the real Mark Jenkin. <laughs> and where do we know Mark Jenkin from? The thing he's most known for is Bait, which was uh, released in 2019, which he won a BAFTA for. For an outstanding debut feature film uh, by a British filmmaker. Exactly. And it's awesome if you haven't seen that film. Yeah, Do yourself a favour and go and watch it. But he also makes amazing short films, Will. He does, yes. Uh, David Bowie is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, Hard Crack Hard- the Wind. Yeah, and these are these are available on BFI Player. Yeah. And he's made music videos for the likes of Tom York's new project, The Smile, and Bicep. Which is pretty cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, his most recent film is called Ennis Main, feature film, which is a mind-bending Cornish folk horror set on an island off the Cornish coast. And this is released on Blu-ray and DVD and on BFI Player on the 8th of May. And this is one we really recommend you go and see. Like, it's worth re-watching, I Mm. think. Um, And yeah, there's just so much to mine in this film. It's great, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I loved it. I loved it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We loved we loved talking to Mark about it as well. So triple whammy. Yeah, totally. And we go into his process um, on filmmaking, his opinion on short films generally, which is something we both got a lot yeah. out of. His outlook as well, why he moved back to Cornwall, his writing process. He did. The, he. It's just such an inspiring episode for both of us. We're both just like in awe. Absolutely blown away end. by him. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just a last couple of things before we get into it. Uh, big thank you for London Short Film Festival, who were like instrumental in setting this up. Great festival. Uh, and if you want to check them out, check out the link in our description below and you can find out how to apply with your short, maybe, or just go. And then finally, uh, check us out on Instagram. <laughs> short Films Big Questions. No caps, no spaces. Short Films Big Questions. <laughs> Mark, such a pleasure to have you on Short Films Big Questions. Thanks uh, thanks so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. Uh, yeah, really excited to have you here. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here. We thought we'd start off by um, asking, well, a, a, a question about short films. And so we both read that you still make uh, Super 8 short films. And we're just wondering why you still do this. What do you gain from it? Does it? Are you making them just to make them? Or is it informing maybe the bigger projects that you're you're now doing? Yeah, I, I've come at it quite a strange, uh, quite a, a different direction because I, I started out not making short films. First film I made was a feature film, or I attempted to make a feature film. It ended up being about sixty minutes minutes long and um, isn't a feature film and doesn't feel like a feature film and was never released or anything. But I, I think when I left university, where the focus had been on making short films, I I, I sort of thought, well, if you're going to make a short film the hassle of making a short film, you might as well make a feature film. And I didn't recognise the value of short films. And then I did make a couple early on in my career, mostly linked to funding opportunities when there was a lot more public money around, certainly in Cornwall, kind of European redevelopment money that we had. And there was a film fund here. And I made a couple of short films then, but I, I, didn't, I didn't see them as massively important. I saw them as a way to make a film um, whilst I had feature films in development and get funding for it. And then I got to the stage where I was in what's known as the industry as in, in the industry as development hell, which is when you have a, a feature film in development that just year after year doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And at about at the same time I 
I, I picked up a Super 8 camera for the first time in a long time because I'd started on Super 8 and then I'd progressed in inverted commas to working on digital video and I picked up a Super 8 camera and just decided to make a, a short film with, with a Super 8 camera and, and there was a cost involved to the film stock and uh, and I and I was a bit scared of Super 8 because I've been working with with video which seemed to be sort of foolproof um, and I was thinking, you know, if I shoot on film, is it going to come out? Am I going to expose it right? Are the lab going to mess it up? You know, all of these kind of things. And so I wasn't very precious about it, but I, well, I, I was very precious about it, but I wasn't, I wasn't counting on having a, a final film come out of the end of that. And I, and I, and, and I got the footage back and it just looked amazing. And I cut together this sort of experimental, but, but now nar experimental narrative short film and showed it to people and people kind of really liked it and reacted really well to it and I, that was only in 2000 and uh, god when was that 2015 or something like that and I just suddenly thought actually yeah there's a whole making short films is a whole separate art form they're different things you know and in a lot of ways they're not related to feature films and I think something like the London Short Film Festival really celebrates that it's like you know on one hand they do get back the alumni who have who've, who've had films screened as short as short filmmakers who then come back having made a successful feature film which I suppose is I'm an example of that's why I was back at London Short Film Festival this year but also they just do celebrate short films as a as a, a form within themselves that don't have to be the the poor relation of feature films and I think I really under, I've really understood that over the last decade and I've just made two short films now I delivered both of them on Thursday they're both made for the BFI and they're 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 just short films they couldn't be expanded into feature films they're you know so so I I think in answer to your question what what I did was I started making short films to to release some of the pressure of being in development hell where you're just having meetings about hypothetical projects and I was getting to the point where I thought you know I've had a project in development for five years am I still a filmmaker or am I just mm -hmm. a bloke who talks about making a film one day and the short films allowed me to have all of that creative freedom and I and I didn't have mm -hmm. to get the okay from anybody you know I didn't have to get any financing I didn't have to get approvals or anything I was just doing it off my own back I'd do a bit of teaching and with the money I got from teaching I'd buy some film stock and buy myself more importantly a bit of time to go and make a short but but the real value became uh came from recognizing that that the way that I was making the short films I was doing with complete freedom. So I designed the process that I really enjoyed, which was shooting on film, mm. quite often hand processing the film and then um, editing it and then creating a soundtrack separate to it. And I, it got to the point where I just thought, actually, I'd like to, if I ever get to make a feature film, I'd like to make a feature film in this way because this way excites me and the other way doesn't really excite me. And luckily I had two very supportive producers at, at Early Day Films, Kate Byers and Lim Waite, who just said, "Yeah, let's go for it. Let's let's not do the film that's in that's stuck in development. Do it and do a new film, um, which is actually quite an old script of mine, but do a, a brand new project and and shoot it in the way you've been doing your shorts, which is to shoot on on film, hand process mm. the negative and post sync all the sound. And that that was bait, you know. And, and that was quite difficult to to pitch that 
you know, it's very easy for people to understand what bait is now if, mm. if people have seen it. Yeah. But yeah, to describe yeah. it before it was made was quite difficult to pitch um, mm. because it was so such a weird proposition. I want to make a drama, 16mm black and white post-synced mm. hand-processed drama about a Cornish fisherman and people would think, whoa, that's com <laughs> commercial suicide <laughs> in the first place. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but, it, but the fact that it was so difficult to pitch as an idea, I just thought, well, that means that it's going to be different. It's going to, it mm. might be something that people haven't seen before. But all of that came from experimentation within short films where I was making short films without approval i was making mm. them thinking well it, if it's terrible if it doesn't work that i don't have to ever show this film to anybody which allowed me to go really personal as well which i think is when these films did come out and a lot of them were shown at london yeah. film festival this year um they connect with people because people don't maybe necessarily recognize the sort of the specifics of these films but they come from such a personal uncensored place that i think people do connect with them or, or they seem to have done do you, yeah. Um, do you think that freedom then that you've just said that you had there, like you didn't have to show it to anyone, do, do you think that they kind of freed you up to make something maybe potentially a lot better than the thing that was in development then? So the short films themselves, the freedom that you had there kind of allowed you to express yourself in the way you wanted to uh, or maybe a way you didn't know you had before that? Yeah, <clears throat> it just gave me the faith in what I was doing because I was able to put these short films in yeah. front of an audience, you know, and they screened at places like uh, Encounters in Bristol and an Aesthetica up in York. And these festivals that I, for years I tried to get short films into, but I'd never had anything screened. And then mm -hmm. I think I was mm -hmm. probably half thinking of what the audience would want. But once I started making these single reeler and two real super eight films, I th it was almost like writing a diary. You know, you write in a diary and you, you, you can you can have complete freedom of what you're writing because you know that nobody's ever going to read it. You're kind of really making it for your you're writing a diary for yourself. You know, unless somebody finds it or steals it or something, or or else, <laughs> or you think, oh, this is this is good stuff. I'm going to publish this. You know, you get famous and go, right, I'm going to publish my diaries or something. You know, you can write it with complete freedom, though nobody's going to see it. And that and that that's what I had with these short films. I thought, well, nobody's going to nobody's going to watch these. This is just like because I. I was making them in the same way that I started making Super 8 films when I was 17 for no audience. And that wasn't out of choice. It was just nobody wanted to watch the short film. You know, my mum and the cat would sit and watch them <laughs> with, with me. But I could be quite free with what I was doing because no, I sort of knew nobody was going to see them because who was going to watch them? This, yeah. in, this in, in the, the sort of second iteration of these short films, which was, you know, my super eight revisiting super eight um again i just thought well no i don't have to show these to anybody and actually and actually one of them my film dear marianne i i made and i shot that footage in 2004 and then i came back to it 10 years later just found it on the shelf and thought i've got this these three rolls or two rolls two rolls of reversal film that i just filmed whilst traveling through ireland one summer so I could, that, you know, this is this is an artifact. You know, this isn't ones and zeros on a hard drive. This is two rolls of film that are on the shelf, and I put them on the projector. They're, they're positives, you know, they're reversal film. So I put them on the projector, and so I could write a film using this footage, almost like a found footage 
mm. film. And so I did that and wrote a, wrote a voiceover for it and then just, and then waited another year before I looked at that edit again. And I looked at the edit and I thought, it's quite good. There's something in this and then tweaked it, you know, probably tweaked it in about an hour and thought, actually, that's a finished short film. And then I just happened to put a little 30 seconds of it on Twitter or Instagram and a producer who I knew got in contact with me and said, what is this? This is, this looks really interesting. And so I sent her mm. a link to the full five minute film and she said, this is great. And so I, I put it out, you know, I sent it to some festivals and I think it kind of got into every festival that I submitted it to. And I thought, and I, and it's, I don't think it's cause it's a great film. I don't think everybody watched it and went, Oh, this is amazing. But I think it got looked at more than once by different people because it looked different. And mm. they, and, and the, the festivals didn't really know what to do with it because, because it was shot on film at a time when nobody was shooting film. Ten, you know, ten years ago when all the labs were closing and everybody had kind of, you know, people were low budget. Everybody was shooting on DSLRs and, you know, the Red and Arri and all this kind of stuff were just starting to become affordable. Everybody was embracing this new wave of digital technology. Nobody was shooting film, and so in these festivals, my short films ended up going into experimental strands because people just looked and went, "Guys, this looks really weird." But if you if you pick it apart, they're not experimental because they're all narrative and you know for an experiment you can be formally experimental but it still means it's a it's still a narrative film to be true it, capital e experimental you know it, that's avant-garde that's non-narrative formalist filmmaking mm -hmm. but they ended up mm -hmm. in these sort of like sidebars of festivals that maybe were slightly easier to get into because there was less submissions but suddenly it all kind of blew up and and i just saw actually i'm on the the thing that I was always told to get out of, which is my comfort zone, was actually real sort of fertile ground for not only for my work, but for audiences to connect with it. Hmm. Um, yeah, really interesting stuff. I mean, just, just to go back a bit, um, when you were talking about picking up the Super 8 for the second time and returning to it, was there also an element of, you mentioned like development hell with one of your projects, but was there an element of trying to be like as self-sufficient as possible? Like with the projects you were working on before when you were on digital, were they quite, were you quite reliant on your crew? And was, you know, the, the Super 8 anything to do with that? No, I don't think so. I think what I, I grew up here and then I went away to, to university in Bournemouth. Um, and then I ended up in London working in the industry as an editor. And then I ended up moving back to Cornwall, kind of almost by chance. There was some money, European money here in Cornwall to develop a, a, a film industry. So I moved back to get involved in that. Um, as soon as I moved home, I kind of remembered or was suddenly immersed in the world that was very familiar to me, which was incredibly self-sufficient. So when I was in London, I presumed everything had to be going on in London. And then I moved back mm. to Cornwall and actually a couple of films that I made were screened in Cornwall while I was still living in London. And I went home to, to the, to see them screen and they were screened in, um, village halls right in Cornwall. And you, I turn up to a village hall, quite a remote, in a quite a remote part of Cornwall and sort of open the door to the village hall thinking, oh, I'm going to, the film's going to screen to 
two people and a dog. And I'd open up the door and there'd be 200 people there who would be there oh. for like three or four hours. You know, there'd be food. And and I just suddenly thought, actually, this is, this is the centre of the film industry that I want to be in, is in mm -hmm. the remotest parts of Cornwall because that self-sufficiency had run through the industry all along. So when the film industry when the Cornish film industry was getting going. So it was, it was the likes of people like the people who really did the groundwork. So people like George Green and Paul Farmer and Antal Kovacs and all these people who were working in Cornwall for a long time before I came back to Cornwall, I came back and there was already this support network, but there was in the very bedrock of the place was this self-sufficiency that was born out of hmm. not being in the center of the industry. And actually, it's a real benefit, I think, to have that, you know, to be cut off and to not quite know the right ways to do stuff in inverted commas and to not quite have the right equipment and things like that. So I came back and was like, you know, I'd watched these films that were being made in Cornwall thinking, geez, this is batshit crazy work. Mm -hmm. This doesn't look right. <laughs> you know, this isn't what films are low budget short films are supposed to look like and then i suddenly went no that's the beauty of them these people are making really idiosyncratic individual work because they're making up their own rules and then and they're and they're creating it with the equipment that's available and the and the people that are available and it and it create a really distinct body of work for for a period of time here so i think there's i mean there's a self-sufficiency that runs through cornwall anyway you know what i always mm. say is that i don't know anybody in cornwall who's got one job everybody does more than one thing and i think that's mm. in one way that's a sign of um the state of the economy here um which is not something to be celebrated but it, what it does create is a, is that self-sufficiency a hardiness to to do whatever's needed to get by and that can be you know living on the bread line in a lot of cases mm -hmm. um but it also means like creatively as well people just use what's around them and um yeah and so i think you know I, it's a bit of a paradox for me because i get i get a lot of attention my filmmaking gets a lot of attention in terms of you know that i do everything but the paradox is that I do a lot, but I couldn't do everything that I do unless I have my team of collaborators who, if any one of them went, the whole thing would f fall to pieces. So there is a real, um, there is a real self-sufficiency, but it's, but it is collective to a certain, to a certain degree, you know, even, even these two films that I've just made for the, for the BFI, which I've made ultimately on my own, there's, two or three people that I need to come and look mm. at them and give me feedback before I will sign them off, you know, before I know that they, they're working. So yeah, there, there is a little bit of a paradox there at the heart of the way that I work. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. Yeah. I just, yeah. Just on that, I guess in terms of, yeah, Cornwall and people like, helping oh well as in people having to wear many hats um that was sort of like what i found inspiring about going to your um short film screening just like because you know it just feels it can feel a lot of time in london there are so many fences you know or there are so mm -hmm. many 
things you need to do to make the film and then like and all of a sudden you haven't made a short film for like a year and a half because you're you're waiting on the you know chasing something but then I thought yeah those short films just proved you know that you don't necessarily need to do that you know you can you can pursue these things on your own or with as you say with with a couple of collaborators so that's what I find so inspiring about your work a lot of the time yeah I think we've both I, I found think, I think it's that... I, I was just going to add on to that. We both found I just made something that was meant to be quite simple and you know easy to make, and then it just it always you know balloons, and part of that's in the yeah. writing. But then I think then there's a prevailing attitude: you need this, and you need this, and you need this if you're going to get in to such and such festival, and make a mark. Um, mm. It's just a it's a weird attitude maybe that we have that's like the, the prevailing attitude now. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's funny because I'm in such a privileged position now that I, there's some festivals that I couldn't, you know, I would submit stuff and not get a response. And now, and I'm talking short film festivals now because of bait, I get, not only do I kind of get invited to put films in, but also I get invited to go and sort of talk at these festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of, you know, it's, it, for the time being, I'm, I am in this privileged position. I also know, you know, you're only ever as good as your last film or last couple of films. So that that might change. Um, but I think that I think the th- the thing to to do is just to not compromise and try and try not to think of what an audience might want or a you know or what a festival selector might want, and just actually do the thing that that excites you. So that you're able mm. to, I probably said this in the Q and A at the NSFF is just, it's just to do stuff that's kind of true to to you, and and work to an work for an audience of one, or if you're you know if, you, if you're working together, you know, a, a, an audience of two, and just stick to to what to what you believe in, and not compromise with it at all, because. Otherwise, you fall into a trap of second guessing what somebody else wants, and you you know you could just miss everybody by doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think that you know keeping it simple is the hardest thing to do when you're making a film. Mm-hmm. And I know you know very empathetic with that thing of you start with a simple idea and suddenly you wake up one in the morning and go, how do we get here? Why have we? Why do we need? <laughs> Why do we suddenly need six hundred extras and eighteen yeah. cameras this day? This was going to be like <laughs> yeah, totally. when I didn't notice that happen, and now we're here. Yeah. So I sometimes think, you know, with a short film, the way I started was I started without any scripts. So I would have my old Super Eight footage, effectively use it as found footage, put it on the timeline, and write it after it's been shot and I sort of think that's kind of like a good starting point because editing is writing anyway so it's not as if you're not mm. writing and and then you really you don't have a chance to balloon it out of proportion because you just go right I'm going to go and shoot this I'm going to go and shoot 20 setups and that's it then I'm going to get in the edit and create something and that's when you end up creating because you get in the edit and go well fuck this none of this cuts together <laughs> doesn't mm. fit the idea yeah. I originally had but then that's great as long as you can get over that hurdle go right well these are my building blocks I'm going to make something that's and then you have to rely on your imagination your ingenuity and lean into all those limitations and that's when you end up creating something that not only did you not expect but the audience won't expect so then that goes to a festival and they look at it and go well I don't quite know what to make of this but 
it's different to everything else we've got. So they'll hand it on to somebody else and go, can I get a second opinion on it? This is what I imagine happens. It's like, have a look at this. I can't work out whether this is really good or really shit because it's really different, you know, and you can't (laughs) quite often, you can't tell to start with because it's like you know and all most of my favorite films i've ever seen you know i've i I was thinking this is either brilliant or it's awful and i can't tell the difference Mm. at this point but that's a sign of it being different and i think that's you know the more sort of obstacles you can put in your way um the better i think when things balloon is when you haven't got obstacles weirdly i think we kid ourselves and thinking well it's got to be this because we can't do this and we can't do that and actually at the end of the day, I don't think there's any excuse for overcomplicating stuff. And that's not, mm, you know, mm. I'm talking about myself as well. It's like, well, why did I, why did I make that so complicated? You know, I always think back mm. to Scorsese saying about when he, when he gets stuck, it's like, God, why is this got so complicated? How do I get out of this complicated situation? And his mantra is always, what would Bresson do? And if you look at Bresson, you go, well, the simplest possible thing, simple, set the simple, camera simple. up. Yeah, don't move the camera. Frame it simply, you know. Keep the story and the narrative as simple as possible and allow the theme and the meaning to be complex and sophisticated. So I always just think, you know, simple. Just keep it keep it simple. And the best way to keep it simple is to put obstacles in front of yourself. And go, right, we've got mm. seven days to shoot this. Actually, let's do it in five. Hmm. We've got, see what uh, happens. Qu- Quite often, I'll you know we'll get to a set, we'll get to a location, and we and we just think, are we going to be able to do this? We've got like fifteen setups to do today. Have we got time to do it? And go, no, we haven't got time to do it. Let's do it in eleven. Let's spend half an hour working out how we can do this in eleven. You know, so you waste some time not shooting, simplifying it, which seems counterproductive. But then also the benefit is you get in the edit and go, well, I've, I've only now got. 11 setups to cut together rather than 15 so suddenly the edit speeds up which is always the thing that takes the most time mm-hmm. so i think um yeah the more obstacles you can put in your place and put in in your way the the better i think that naturally leads into the, just how how you go about writing like with your feature films as well with bait and ennis main but the the short films as well like what's the process there because it's it seems well, in the short films, it seems quite different, but the your features, there's this sense of place, right? They're Cornish films. I was reading, you were saying, you know, Ennis Main's not a horror film, or it's a Cornish folk horror film, and then you actually took folk and horror away from it. It's actually it's just a Cornish film, and the same with Bait. I'm wondering, do you, do you just, do you have, like, a theme in your head before you start writing? Does that come out, come about naturally from, I don't know, with Ennis Main, maybe it's just the location, you saw the location, and, and it just all came naturally from there or maybe it differs per project i don't know yeah it's different every time i think with ennis main it was um i had this idea of a standing stone as a sort of haunted a haunted object or a sentient inanimate object and some inherent horror in that that was a hangover from my childhood and being surrounded by the standing stones in the landscape here and being told the sort of christian versions of why the stones there which were you know the stones were examples of sinners who'd been been petrified you know so when you're told that as a little kid not not that i was brought up in a christian family or anything but that that those stories are told and when you're a little kid when you're a sponge taking all that in that's quite a scary idea so that was (laughs) that was the starting point for ennis main but but very quickly there's a sort of you know it has to get over a a sort of um 
a test really for it to to be developed further which is you know is this film actually about anything or are you just going to write a film about a stone that might be a bit scary and so I, I think films take so long to make and and the film career in terms of the amount of films you can make is so short when it comes to feature films that I really believe I want to films have got to say something for them to be worth making so with Venice Main it was just working out you know what what did I want to say about this film that I'd say mm -hmm. through this film that on the surface is is maybe about a, a standing stone but underneath is about a lot more um with with something like and, and so Ennis Main was written in three nights the first draft it was just written in a sort of frenzy I mean it was and it was it was it handwritten it was written on 20 uh, like over 20 pages in a little notebook because there's so little dialogue in it I was able to write it very quickly whereas Bait took I started writing Bait in 1999 and we shot it in 2017 and we shot draft 42 of the screenplay so that was very different. That that went through lots of different formal incarnations, but the theme always stayed the same. It was always about the same thing. I didn't really know what that was until late on, but I couldn't quite work out what I was trying to say. But I was then able. I have been able to articulate what that film says since, and I know that's what I was always getting at. But formally, it changed. It was going to be a found footage film originally. Bait. It was going to be mm. shot on a video camera, and it was going to be like two, or like a mini DV tape that had been found that had been shot by this fisherman trying to make a film about his way of life for his unborn child. So it was a very. It went from being formally very specific to formally very specific in a very different way. So that was a, a different writing process. Short films. I like to not write scripts for my short films, especially the sort of road movies that I make. So um, I made a film called David Bowie is Dead, which you would have seen in, in London. Yeah. I shot that over three years, just on visits to London. Um, and I finished filming. I didn't have an end point for that. I was just shooting footage of London and then... One day I was in London for the London Short Film Festival, funnily enough, and I was woke up. I woke up um, to the news that David Bowie had died, and I and I had my Super 8 camera. And I had a roll of film. I thought I'm going to just go out and film today. This, this last roll, and then that's it. It's like David Bowie's dead. That means I'm not allowed to film anymore. So totally arbitrary limitation I put on the film. It's like, well, if David Bowie's not here anymore, mm. I'm not allowed to film anymore. You know. Mm. I needed something to stop me shooting. And so that's why it's called mm. David Bowie is dead. And that was the starting point of the film is this day. And then it goes back and investigates my relationship with London. And I wrote that, I wrote that script in one go through the night. And it's one sentence that lasts for 17 minutes, which if you talk nonstop for 17 minutes, that's pages and pages and pages of text. I've got it here. Some I've got the notebook. I just sat up, all night and I wrote and so I didn't edit it at all mm. there's not a single edited thing and then I recorded the voiceover in one go into a tiny little micro cassette dictaphone um, in one go just read the whole thing there's no punctuation in it so I just so why the intonation is sometimes a bit weird and funny and didn't allow myself to to do any retakes or anything mm. and so that was written afterwards I just I've just done a film now for um, 
So um, Ajay Skolomovsky, who's just released EO, is over at, yeah. in London for for his. Uh, he's got a retrospective at the BFI, and the BFI and the um, Polish Cultural Office asked me to make a, a short film or to record an introduction to EO um, to say what uh, not to EO to the shout. Well, Skolomowski's 1978 yeah. film, because um, they knew that I was a big fan of that film, so they asked me to do a, a piece to camera, um, sort of saying what the film meant to me. And I, I can't do that. I can't sit in front of a camera and just from a standing start start talking. I'm fine in this situation where I'm reacting to questions, but I couldn't do that. So I said to them, "Well, I'll I'll, I'll shoot some Super 8 footage and and do an intro over the top and." And they okayed that, and so I got hold of two, two rolls of Super 8 Ectochrome, and I, I thought actually I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a short film, you know. I think that would be more in keeping with the, with the great man, you know, go and express myself using the film form. So I, I spent about a week researching where all the locations were, where they filmed up in North Devon, and, and um. I made a, li a shot list of places that I wanted to go to and looked on Google Maps and Street View and found where all the locations were and did a, a single... I got up at a crack of dawn, drove up to North Devon and went around all the locations that I'd found and shot a shot in each location, filled up two rolls of film, filmed the last shot as the sun was setting up near Heartland Point and then drove home. Had the film processed and then had basically five minutes of footage and then watched it, and then um, wrote a narration to go over the top, which was partly factual, partly imagined, documentary, but a bit of, bit of um, fiction in there as well. I created a soundtrack, because I don't know if you've seen The Shout, but um, John Hurt's character is a, is a sound designer in the film, so he's got a home studio where he, he makes abstract sounds using different... Um, different objects and things and so I recreated in here some of the sounds that he makes in the film and then created a synth score to go with it and so really wrote the film in the edit so shot it and then wrote it which is what I did with oh, yeah. David Bowie's Dead which is what I did with Dear Marianne which is that early Irish yeah. um, road movie and so can I, I ask a, do you mind if I just mm. ask a, a quick question about um, David Bowie's Dead um I mean, yeah, that's all that stream of consciousness poetry, I suppose, like it's like spoken word. And that's a recurring theme throughout your short film work. Um, is that like, were you influenced at all by by someone in particular? And, and that's in that sort of style of spoken word. Yeah, poetry, I suppose. It kind of reminded me a bit of um, like a Bret Easton Ellis novel or I don't know, like um, actually as well, like there's a scene in Rules of Attraction, the film um where there's yeah this element of like the words the stream of consciousness the words are going so quickly and yeah and it becomes yeah with the, with the music underneath it as well as specifically in David Bowie is dead it becomes very you're very emotional I suppose cause it's about the past and past being dead but yeah I wondered if what what was the influence behind that style it, it's probably I mean the starting point is relying on your gut instinct so when because I quite often work quite in quite a solitary way when I'm editing. Although I did, you know, I said that I need people to come in and give their opinion, but specific people at specific times I get in to ask their opinion. Up until that point, I'm quite often just working on my own 
and I really try mm. not to think about anything. That's the big battle is don't think, just feel it and go with it, which is why I think my films look like they look. So the big the sort of mantra for me is um, Gins, Alan Ginsberg's first thought, best thought, um, wow. which I think is, you know, like um, where? Yeah, like. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah right on cue. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. Had it right there. So, yeah. 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 So the sort of the spontaneous, yeah, spontaneous prose is the mm. is the big thing, and and a lot of that is me just hating sort of redrafting stuff and re-editing stuff. So really embracing the imperfections of things, and that goes through everything. Like my friend Andrew Cotting, who's you know. An absolutely amazing filmmaker. He calls himself a shoddyist. You know, he's Shut proud up. to be sort of shoddy and rough around the edges and imperfect. And he, one of my proudest moments is when he, he crowned me a shoddyist as well. And it's one of those <laughs> things that is, is sort of supposed to be taught out of you. You know, get things right, yeah. redraft it. With editing, you can cut, recut and recut and recut until it's right. You can you can redraft scripts until they're absolutely perfect. And and you do have to go through that process of redrafting stuff. But there it's a fine line. You can you can kill stuff. You can you can wipe mm. out the thing that's alive by, you know, have it quite often with with screenplays, although the people that I'm working with at the moment, the execs that I work with at, at, at Film 4 are absolutely fantastic and I, I wouldn't change anything about the way we're working together. But in the past, you know, I've had so many people feed in and everybody's got an mm. idea and you just go, actually, I don't want any more input. I just want to do it because I, I feel like the thing that is at the heart of it is is at, is at risk. Um, and I always think that writing is like the the act of sitting down and writing a screenplay for me is kind of what it feels like the writing is the act of systematically destroying a perfectly good idea. You know, you kind of, by putting it into words, you do, you sort of destroy and you, and you have to, because you'll destroy the idea one way or another, however you realize it, you know, when you make a film, you're, it's the act of, nine times out of ten, destroying a perfectly good idea. Because the idea you've got in your mind is perfect. Mm. Unless you've got a, like a personality issue, you don't imagine something that's imperfect. You, know, mm. you imagine mm. this amazing mm. film. And of course, you're never going to create the thing that you've created in your mind. But I think um, you've got to be really careful that you you don't kill it too early. You don't change it too early because you need a huge amount of energy and enthusiasm to get to the end of the filmmaking process. So I sort of embraced the, the shoddiest kind of ethos that I want it to be human and human means it's going to be imperfect. And, and I want to capture the energy of something rather than a kind of cold yeah. clinical perfection. So I think that writing style comes from that first thought, best thought don't, don't rewrite, mm. just do it. You know, there's another film, my favorite short film that I've ever done, I think it's called the essential Cornishman, which is a, another, and I really, you know, I, I pitched this or I didn't pitch it at all, but I, when I wrote the synopsis, when it got selected for festivals, I said, you know, this is, this is inspired by the beat writers who would mm. write to sort of, you know, try, they would, they would, somebody like Kerouac, for example, was trying to write, 
you know, I mean, it's a cliche. Stream of consciousness, like, yeah. Stream of consciousness yeah. and using sort of like free jazz kind of theory that you just yeah. go, you just go within. It's about rhythm and it's not necessarily about content. It's greater than the sum of its parts. So something like The Essential Cornishman or David Bowie is Dead, I don't, I don't expect the audience to understand the specifics of everything I'm saying. They don't have to understand every word because some of the references are so random and so abstract and so personal to me. But you feel the atmosphere of it rather than understanding the specifics of it with the essential Cornishman. Well, I took that to a real extreme where I, I, you know, I listened to love Supreme John Coltrane in my headphones and then read the narration that I'd written in one go into a dictaphone that I was holding whilst listening to love Supreme at deafening volume. So I couldn't hear my own voice. But as I was speaking, I was being influenced by what I was hearing, which sounds so wanky and high concept when I describe it. But it, but it was just like, how am I going to do this in a way that is kind of almost like a structuralist approach that means I can't re-edit it? And mm. I think I recorded it. Yeah, I did. I just recorded it once. And that was it. You know, and I didn't edit it. And at one point in the middle of it, I sort of do this weird kind of whistling because I'm whistling along with a bit of the music that I recognize. And, and it just all stays in, you know, there's no cleanup process yeah. technically in anything I do. And that includes the writing, you know, just don't, don't clean it up. Just leave the, leave the imperfections and stuff. Cause I think that's what the hu humans kind of fellow humans yeah. connect with imperfection. You know, that's, yeah. that's the, it's the human condition to be all to be deeply flawed and the interesting bits are the are the contradictions within us and i think that's the interesting bit within films which is also why i like the period of films i like so much that kind of 70s feel because everything mm -hmm. i mean nowadays things certainly aesthetically feel yeah, yeah it feels too too sharp you know like eye bleedingly yeah. sharp yeah. images and sound is all perfect whereas i want you know i want a bit of I want a bit of buzz on the soundtrack. I want the sync to be slightly off. I want the edits to be slightly, slightly mm. botched. You know, I'd recognize all of that because I'm a deeply imperfect, flawed person. And and so I mm. recognize that in, in, in other people, you know, it's, it's kind of quite um, gratifying to see that in, in yeah. films or people or whatever, you know, it's kind of makes you feel like you're not mad. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I think I think there's something to be said for like the the it's like I think some people call it like the vomit draft. It's just like the thing that just comes out of you, right? If you've been thinking about this thing for ages and ages and ages, and it's like okay, I'm finally gonna write it down with John Coltrane in my ears or whatever. It's like Werner Herzog <laughs> talks about like he just he puts on classical music super super loudly in his studio, and he fucking writes and he just writes and it comes out. And there's yeah. there must there's just so much there's uh, I mean Yain you sent me something that was just like super raw and it was just like just first draft and it it is so easy like you say when collaborators come on which is great to you can get everyone's opinions and then it it turns into you know what it wasn't meant to be maybe initially yeah, um, yeah. I don't I don't even know how I had a question there I just thought I was really <laughs> really no yeah, but yeah, I, like, it's, I think yeah. it's a, it's a fra it's a fragile sort of process to, to yeah. make a film and you've got to be really careful not to kill it before you start you know i see so many i've spoken to so many people who've gone into production on stuff and they're like 
you know, they're all ready. They all really kind of hate script before they start yeah. shooting. It's yeah. like, man, you've got all of that work to do and you're going into it like that. So you've really got to protect it in that first instance and create an uncompromising working practice. And there's no blueprint to it. You know, it'd be different for everybody, but just, and some people do, you know, I know other people, friends of mine who work and they want the script to be, really rigorously poured over before they're ready to go and that gives them the energy to to mm. for, to see the project through so i don't think i'm not saying everybody should work how i work but everybody should find what works for them and then refuse to compromise on it which is easier said than done because mm. you know especially if you're working with public money and stuff obviously the, the funders have got a uh an obligation to the to the taxpayer or the lottery players or whoever it is that's give it, that's ultimately funding it to to um to protect that and not for it not to be a folly um but that's why you know a good execs are, are, are worth their weight in gold mm-hmm. yeah um amazing i mean i thought yeah maybe we just change tax slightly here and then talk a bit about Ennis Main, and then also specifically about, I guess now we've done your, a bit of your writing process, your your process in terms of do you storyboard, do you shot list, like yeah, how does that work for you? Um, do you do is it all sort of the same time as the writing? Are you thinking like totally visually? Are you seeing it in your head as you write? Like, yeah, how does how does that work for you? Yeah, I don't know. I don't never storyboard anything because hmm. I think that's part of my process of protecting the idea i think if i went through the the process of having to storyboard everything i'd find that such hard work that the passion for what i was doing would be diminished during that process i i i I do do simple shot lists quite often it's just as, as so that i can go on to set and feel like i've done some preparation i may not even look at them but I can yeah. go on thinking, well, I've got a plan, you know, and if my brain... And that's free- the same with, like, when you, say, when in bait, when you, like, incorporate slow motion at certain points, is that in the... Would that sort of be in the shot list as well? Or is that sort of on the day? You, you Just on the point? day. I mean, sometimes it will lean... It will, it will suggest something like slow motion because it will be a quick bit of action. So I'll do a take at 24 frames a second and I'll do, I'll do a take at whatever the camera runs at, 64 frames a second... And I'll, mm. so that I've got both. And then in the edit, mm. you know, I'll decide which to use. And sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll go the other way. You know, I'll, I'll shoot something at 64, thinking that's what I'm going to use. And then in the edit, I'll go, actually, no, this looks better at 24. And stuff at 24, I'll suddenly go, actually, I'm going to just drop a bit of slow-mo in here just to see what it does. So, mm. yeah, sometimes I've got ideas that are really set and but most of the time i try not to you know we don't we don't have enough resources to kind of revisit locations over and over again before we're shooting so we might go and visit location once and then when we go there to shoot the sun will be a different in a different position so the whole space will look different and go actually we're not going to shoot that way we're going to shoot this way so i try not to get too set before we get there and also when i get to a location i've got all of my collaborators with me and i don't want to go in there with exact set idea because it shuts down all of their input and it's really key at that mm. moment especially if somebody like colin who's lighting it he'll come in and go with no preconceptions and go well the sun's there this is there you know could bang a bit of fill in there put a bit of um bounce light in there and i'll go oh yeah let's do that whereas if i go in and i've got it 
set in my head. You know, mm. I don't want to be in that position where I'm stamping my feet, going, "Oh, I want the light to be different. This isn't how I imagined it." You know, and be that that sort of wanker director. Yeah. So, because um, <laughs> I haven't got the, you know, maybe if I had the resources, I would be that wanker who wants, you know, the the whole house moved two foot to the left because the light's slightly better or something. But I think, you know, my if I've got a skill, my skill is is working with what I've got and working within real strict limitations and, and I like to those limitations to be fresh on the day. If I've got something that's mm. more complicated, I will you know, like a an action scene. There was a couple of things in bait where they were like confrontations that I never storyboarded or shot listed and they when we came to shoot them were really problematic because I was like I haven't planned for this at all mm. and they really had to be made in the edit um, because I didn't have the coverage because I hadn't planned for what were really action sequences and I hadn't considered that um, right. and and I think for Ennis Main I was better planned for that and we, we had I, I think because we had a stunt to do um, the the girl falling through the glass roof. Yeah, yeah, yeah that because, was the bit I was going to say. That feels really like premeditated. So I'm amazed that it's not storyboarded. It it just feel really feels well. You know. Well, it's a single shot. I mean, the actual stunt with the stunt woman, who you know, it, it was a, a a trained stunt woman, not the little girl. Um, little girl. I mean, it wasn't Flo, the the teenager who plays uh, who plays the um, who was the actor. You know, it was, it was a stunt woman. Um. That's, it's just a single shot. Mm. And, oh, and I meant the bit. Um, maybe, maybe it's just before the actual accident. But it's you're intercutting um, so many different things. I don't want to do uh, spoilers, but it's all. It's like you know. It feels, oh, the wide shot yeah. when she falls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I forgot about that. That is actually Flo who did that. Um, yeah. So uh, some. Yeah, but I, yeah, I didn't. I never. Um, yeah, I never storyboarded or shotlisted how that right. was going to be. Because right. yeah. the other thing is, you, you you know, on a day like that, you have the technical people there, you have the stunt team there, and they run it. You know, mm. you can't, I'm mm. not in a position to turn up and go, well, I need this shot, this shot, and this shot. Because they'll go, well, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. So what actually happens is you get there, um, and we do, you know, this would have been done beforehand, the week before, and they go, well, this is, this is what's going to happen. And then I decide how I'm going to shoot it. So there was only one way that Flo's character when she falls off the wall backwards out of shot or forwards but out of the out of the shot there was only one way we could shoot that because she's on a on a rope which is going in one direction her harness mm -hmm. so I the only place I can put the camera is where her body is gonna mask the rope as she as she falls and that's the limitation I love because it's like well I've got yeah. no got Attitude. no option yeah. yeah, and having yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. no options is the best thing, especially on a shoot when you've got no time. If you have to think about something, that's hell. Mm. It's yeah. like somebody comes to me and go, right, you've got infinite amount of object uh, options of how to shoot this. I would just go home. Yeah. yeah. But if somebody says, we've got one angle, we're like, we'll go and set the fucking camera up then. Let's go on with it. <laughs> Let's do it. Can I, you know, can that's, I ask, yeah. can I ask how, how you... Um, do you block with the actors and does that then inform... Or the limitations on how the actors are moving, does that then inform the angle you use, how you shoot a, a certain scene? Yeah, well, because of the camera, I mean, I've got one of these cameras here. I mean, that's that's what I shoot on. The um, is it? Yeah. yeah. So, and it's, you know, you wind it, 
and then it's got a manual shutter. So one hand is used to fire the shutter, which means I've got mm. one hand left. With that other hand, I can either move the camera or I can pull focus on the lens. So straight away, it's like, right, is this a shot where I'm going to pull focus or is the camera going to move? So everything is simple, you know, because if I'm going to move the camera, I can't pull focus. If I'm going to pull focus, I can't move the camera. So wow. the blocking is determined by the simplicity of the of the equipment. Again, you know, if I had a, if I was shooting in a more conventional way and I had a focus puller and I had a remote head and all this kind of stuff, you know, I could do anything, but I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do anything because I'd always be imagining a, another more extravagant way of doing yeah. it. Whereas I go the other way and go, well, actually I'm not going to pull focus or, or move the camera because I don't have to. So yeah. what, why don't I want, I want a, vi a, a really simple visual language. So the camera only moves when it's motivated to do so mm -hmm. well you know and I, I do see films sometimes it's like and and a lot of tv i'll be watching tv at home and and i just it just want to pull my own skin off because i like, stop moving the fucking camera <laughs> why are you moving the camera so much there's no there's no motivation and it's all i always think what are you oh, hiding God. What are you mm. hiding by moving the camera? Why are you? I've watched something the other day that everybody was saying, mm. oh, "This is absolutely amazing." I thought it was, it was like edited by I don't know. It was like random editing. I just thought, what mm. the fuck is this fucking nonsense? I cannot engage with this thing at all because of the <laughs> editing. And I'm sure I'm in a minority um, because it will be mm. my taste. Um, you know, and I, I want it to be as simple as possible. And and it sounds a bit rich, me saying stop cutting, because sometimes I'm just cut, 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 cut. But I, I do think all of my cutting is done, you know, people might not like it, but it, it comes from a place of me trying to sort of invoke an atmosphere or, or, or mm. some kind of mood. Whereas I, do, I just sometimes watch drama and think, you're just edit, you're just cutting because you've got all of this footage. It's like, oh, we haven't used that mm -hmm. mid shot. Let's put the mid shot. And it just, I just bounce off it. You know, I just bounce yeah. off the screen and just, I'm not engaged in it at all. Cause I just think, stop cutting, stop moving the camera. You know, it's almost like yeah. showing off. And, and like I know two hander with 10 angles or something, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. Just yeah. to jump in there. I'm just conscious of your time, Mark. Maybe now is a good time just to ask our final question. Um, just about, yeah. What your favorite short film is. Uh, or a short film that's had a real big impact on you and, and it can be on one of your own. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say one of my own. <laughs> I mean, those, those films do... I mean, my short my short films do have big impacts on me, but not as an audience member, more of making it. And I think we've okay. talked about that quite a lot. But um, I, I think two thing, two short films that... I mean, they sh and there'll be loads that I'm forgetting here, but two short films that I... That, I really love one is Jaunt by Andrew Cotting, who I've already mentioned. Who is oh yeah, you mentioned Andrew Cotting. Yeah. An apps, you know, he's he's a genius. He's a one-off. He's an absolute darling of a man. He's a good is friend. He's the of shoddiest. Mine. He's, a, he's the, the shoddiest. Sh yeah. The so shoddiest, he, yeah. Yeah. And Jaunt is on the on the on the BFI DVD that is um, that Gallivant is on, which is the first of his films that I saw, which is just 
a masterpiece. And Jaunt is just such a playful form, form and content at complete play. It's funny, it's moving, it's unsettling, it's experimental, it's everything that film should be. So Jaunt, definitely. And then the other film is Roy Anderson's World of Glory, which is the first ever Roy Anderson film that I watched, which I programmed as part of the Ennis Main uh, DNA season at, um, at the South Bank around the release of Ennis Main. And that, it, mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's a formalist, formalist film um one of the most disturbing opening shots you'll ever watch um but just really opened my eyes to to what you can do with limitations and he i mean he i I visited his studio in in stockholm um when i was over there with bait at the stockholm film festival and went and looked around his place and it's just kind of incredible and it's very complicated what he's doing a huge amount of work but there's also a simplicity and an uncompromising formalism at the heart of it which i just I love and it's one of those things you can go back to and just remind remind myself how simple film can be and how important the limitations Mm -hmm. are in order to be creative so yeah those those are the two that I would I would recommend awesome yeah we'll we'll, we'll be checking them out for sure Mark thank you so much that has been such an incredible experience for us um yeah got gotten so much out of that conversation so thank you yeah thanks so much for taking the time no 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 worries it's a pleasure good good luck with your work and Keep in touch, oh, and I'll, I'll, I'll look out for, for what oh. you're doing. <laughs>